Music, science, cosmic culture. This is the Blue Dot Podcast. One of the UK's best-loved dance acts, the three-time Grammy-nominated Groove Armada, been a mainstay of club and chill-out culture for over 20 years. Since the release of their debut Northern Star and the iconic Vertigo, which tipped them into a household name territory, they've been synonymous with a sound that's traversed house, pop, disco and hip-hop. Equal parts up and down tempo. And over the course of their nine studio albums, they've worked with an extraordinary array of collaborators and guest vocalists, including Richie Havens, Angie Stone, Candy Staten, Nana Cherry, Penel's Nick Littlemore and Brian Ferry. Their latest album, 2020's Fantastic Edge of the Horizon, featured collaborations with the likes of the legendary Todd Edwards and finally receives a live tour this summer. What's billed as the band's final ever stretch on the road. Our Friday night headliners at Blue Dot 2022 this July, we welcome Groove Armada to beneath the Lovell Telescope for a career-spanning live set. And joining us today is Tom Finlay. Welcome to the Blue Dot Podcast with Groove Armada. Hello. Hello. I was just waiting for my cue. How are you doing, Chris? <laughs> I'm very well. That was quite the build-up, wasn't it? Um, you wasn't returned it? after a five-year break with your latest album, Edge of the Horizon. With a new feel, what was the plan going into that album? There wasn't an enormous plan. I think we got to that stage in our career where we sort of stopped making plans, really. Uh, we'd been touring and we'd been listening to quite a lot. of. It's often like the music that we listen to on the tour bus sort of feeds into what we want to make. I've been going through this kind of obsession with kind of trying to give it a better name like better yacht rock like an easier kind of music on the edgier end of that hopefully but uh, i've been listening to a lot of that and um i think we wanted to make a record that the sort of thing that we could imagine ourselves listening to at this stage in our lives a little bit and um that was kind of it really we hadn't really thought about any more than that and um we started pulling it together initially as an ep i think and then as you sort of get more and more committed and the ideas start to flow it turned into an album and it had been an obsession and um yeah ended up being released right in the middle of lockdown which was not ideal was the process for this the same as it ever was actually the process always changed across every record i think you know or like you know the first couple of records we wrote incredibly quickly like northern star we wrote in a week from from start to finish Vertigo was pretty fast. Then we sort of got stuck with Goodbye Country for about a year. But all of those albums were me and Andy kind of shoulder to shoulder in the studio, working on everything together. And then from then on, we Andy starts traveling around the world, going to like Barcelona and France, bought a boat, all sorts of stuff. And the music making became more separate, you know. And so we were writing individually, sometimes with other people as well, and then coming together and trying to pull those ideas into something that we both you know, kind of mutually enjoyed. Uh, Edge of the Horizon was sort of um, very much like that. So loads of ideas written independently. And then Andy would come over maybe for a, a, a weekend of gigs or something. And in the evenings after the shows, he'd come back to my studio and, and try and turn them into tunes, you know. You work hard, kids. You get success. You get to buy a boat. <laughs> it was a Dutch barge. So it, was, it wasn't like a, so it wasn't a super yacht or anything like that. You put out the uh, Full Crate EP last year, which was... I suppose a lot more dance floor ready um, with the Edge of the Horizon and uh, the EP kind of back to back. That feels like Groove Armada personified 
the kind of straddling of the club and non-club worlds. Was that the intention for the EP? Yeah, so we never felt like a proper live band and all we do is 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 tour and, and write songs and go into the studio. They've always had a place in, in club culture. It's been really important to us, you know, having a uh, you know residency on the terrace in space for six, seven years was some of the f- kind of most fun years of um, of our lives, as I'm sure you can imagine. And so we've always wanted to keep that going. I could see an extended phase post this last little album run that we're doing at the moment where we maybe go back underground. We did it with an album called Little Black Book six, seven years ago and really enjoyed making house records again. And yeah, I've I've always quite enjoyed fitting in and out those processes. You know, the the live band stuff is so much more involving. You know, it's like sometimes like running a small business. You've got so many people in rehearsals and it can be quite stressful but obviously enormously rewarding when you're doing shows like the ones we're talking about today and then the club stuff is just very much more intimate it's just me and Andy either in a studio or in a booth with a lot less hassle but probably it's you know it's the kind of the on stage stuff is probably not as quite as mega as as the experience of playing with a band. Why do you say you don't think of yourself or yourselves as a proper live band? I don't know. I just don't feel like, you know, that's the way that we've come across as a, you know, like you think about the duos of our era, you know, like that, the Kems or Daft Punk, it's not quite what we are. And I feel, I guess, or, or Dark Basement Jackson, another example, I feel more kinship, I guess, with those. And I would, uh, you know, with, with, and that's the thing. I mean, how many, how many proper live bands are there really in dance music? I'm trying to think of one that, that you would perceive in that way, you know, but um, so, yeah, I've always felt like it's that, that, that the kind of club music comes first for us but i think what's been really special and what's probably made the reason why we've been hanging around for 25 years is that ability to take the music and put it on a big stage and connect with people on some of the you know some of the biggest stages in the world do you have a preference uh personally um probably prefer the club stuff in terms of the ease of that whole process, you know, like making a record is we tend to just be me and Andy in a studio, might use a loop or a sample, one vocal, you'll put it out, like you said, like that full crate thing, it comes out three weeks later, there's no A&R men involved, it's just straight, like, whereas I guess the live band is just a lot more processes. But of course, there are moments, you know, and the moments when I look back at my career, like, I guess in 10, 15 years time, when I'm sitting with my grandchildren or whatever, and obviously the moments that I will largely remember will be, you know, Headline in the other stage, Glastonbury, hopefully, hopefully paying Blue Dot. You know, these these are the ones that will stand out, I guess, in my memory for for time immemorial. Do you find either easy? If so, which is easiest? Um, I mean, now the live stuff is is pretty straightforward. You know, it, like we we've got much more of a sense of how you do dance music live, and that was the thing that that was just five six years of learning on the hoof how to do that, and nobody tells you how to do that. You just have to work it out by making a catalogue of really awful errors, often in front of large audiences. But once you get there, it's pretty straightforward what you need to do. And, um, you know, would be happily pass that on to anyone who wants to know. But um, I think now, now, now both feel kind of fairly straightforward. We're just about to go into rehearsals uh, tomorrow, in fact. And uh, yeah, it's just dealing with a larger group of people, more egos and stuff like that and so that's always a bit hard isn't it when it comes to the band do you ever wish that you were like a bigger band is it hard when it's just the two of you uh well it's not i mean obviously when we're on stage it's very much not the two of us so it's me and andy and then you know we've got three vocalists uh we've got a drummer with us and a guitar player with us so 
Yeah, it's quite the opposite. Sometimes I wish it was a bit of a smaller band, but yeah, no, it's fun. For the most part, until you actually get out on stage, how is it in terms of the two of you? How democratic right. is Groove Armada? Um, it's, it's, it's enormously democratic. It's actually a, a relationship which has stood up pretty well over 25 years. You know, we've had our ups and downs, um, but uh, we, I feel like, it works quite well as a dynamic I mean, two people you know that nobody cares about this thing as much as the other person in that group with you and that's really important the idea of doing something on my own would be terrifying <laughs> um and i don't know may always say two com- two's company and three's a crowd i think there's something in that 25 years of the two of you that's mm. longer than a lot of marriages it is and if the weird thing was because me and andy go out or we're now married to two women who were best friends and so for the first for like probably six or seven years of our career we would spend all day in the studio together most of the time that was a place up on Tottenham High Road back then or sometimes in Shoreditch and then we'd go home and sit on the same sofa next to each other so that was (laughs) that was a bit mental. What was the ethos for the band when you were starting out? I think it's never really thought through massively I think it was like a product of our like various interests you know like Andy came from came to the project from a kind of quite a classical music background or a classical jazz background you know he played in um the Grimethorpe Colliery Band he was a young jazz musician of the year he had all that kind of classic side and then was very into sort of sort of free party scene of Nottingham and the kind of rave scene then I came from it much more of a sort of rare groove disco kind of background so whatever you get when you throw all that into a mixer is kind of what we are. And I think it's a product of where we, when we started making music together, we were in Shoreditch, we were on a label called Tummy Touch. And it was that kind of, a a, a kind of Shoreditch, which is pretty unrecognisable from the one that you see now. We used to be residents at a place called 333, which was then I think called like the London Apprentice or something, but was a pretty raw place, like in warehouses where we would sort of crawl through uh, you know, gats in the fence to, to play. And so I think that was a sort of weird melding of like kind of almost like warehouse disco is kind of where we were at. And, you know, there was labels like Newphonic around at the time. So I think all of that stuff fed in, you know, and our inspirations at that time were people like Harvey, you know, who's still around. But then I guess as we started writing music together, you start coming under commercial pressures and we started coming towards pop and recognizing that we were actually quite good at that and we liked doing that. And then you end up, you know, with the stuff like I See You Baby and Song for Mucha and stuff like that. And even Paper Romance, which are sort of taking a lot of those influences, but maybe taking it to a more com- commercial place than a lot of artists or like contemporaries of ours did, you know. Do you have a favourite from your back catalogue? Uh, I've got lots, actually. I mean, I never listen back to it. I mean, often, sometimes like songs of ours come on and I f- completely forget that we've got anything to do with them. Like at the river does that to me all the time because it was so ubiquitous for ages. It would come on and it would take me a while to remember. It happened to me on a holiday last summer and I, I really enjoyed it. I, I think I love, I like Song from Mucha because it was a fun record to make and working with her was great. And I think it's so different from what we do. I suppose, uh, I suppose Super Styling is the one that I'm most grateful for, you know, because I think it changed the way we were sort of perceived as a band and what we were able to do. Like we suddenly we were like we could headline festivals uh, and I loved the process of making that record. We're sort of hidden away in a in a studio called Lazy Moon in the Cotswolds for like a year and spent months months trying to hone that record. So there's a certain pride in just committing 
so much time to record that actually has had massive payback for us you know so yeah i love that tune i'd love to hear a bit more about that actually the making of that can you go into a bit more detail yeah so we sat in a we were in a studio called lazy moon which was um owned by a guy called kenny young who he actually died last year he was a guy who wrote um under the boardwalk and various other things i know Corida, lovely guy and just a weird studio down in the absolute middle of nowhere um he used to record, I don't know, he had Van Morrison down there and all sorts of people he would have in his studio. But we were in this tiny little room um, and we would get, we would live there. We lived there, it was like a sort of, we lived there for about a year and went, we learned a lot about our trade in that time, like how, how to actually produce records. We had this massive desk that we bought off the Cocteau Twins. It was delivered in about 8,000 different parts. We spent about the first month literally building this bloody desk. And I just had any idea what we were doing. It was delivered by a, like a van and just dropped on our driveway. And uh, it was just mad time. Yeah, and, and Superstein specifically was, we knew there was a song in there and the kind of bass line and the horns and the MC, all that stuff happened really early. But the main thing with that was sort of when you bring the beat in and when we realised that, it's sort of about holding that vocal and then the vocal, the kind of the, the kind of entering the dance vocal is kind of it stays that then lingering. So it hangs over whether then the drums and the bass come in. Once that moment happened, once basically we moved the vocal back, eight bars, everything fell into place. And uh, but it took us about three months to get to that point. Forgive me if I should know, who is the vocal? He's uh, Mike, Mike Daniel, M- uh, uh, M.A.D., as he's known as an MC, And he's been with us and will be with us on stage at Blue Dot and has been with us right from the beginning. So from Vertigo, he was on that album. I used to play in a football team with him called Homerton Academicals, which is me, him, three of his brothers, uh, the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, played in centre midfield with me. And uh, he came back to my house one night. We just had a kind of, you know, a game and he came back with a few players and I was playing some of the early cuts, instrumental cuts for Vertigo. And he just got up and started rapping. I had no idea he was an MC. And um, that was a track called Whatever and Ever that he was rapping on. But yeah, it was him. And he's been ever present, really. He's done bits on pretty much all of our records and has been the front man, really, for the bands from the very outset, you know. How was Keir as a centre midfielder? <laughs> he, was, uh, he was good, tenacious. I mean, I'm not sure I could quite see the kind of nascent prime minister in him then but he definitely was you know he used to organize the team and he was always on time uh he used to drive me to games he was a, a he's kind of everything you think he is now there's no sort of secrets there he was a really kind man he used to do a lot of um pro bono work for a lot of the guys quite a few of the guys would get into trouble various scrapes and stuff and Keir would always be there bailing them out um he's a really solid person i think he'd make i think he would make a great prime minister he couldn't be any worse than what we've got now let's be honest <laughs> is he a groove armada fan i don't think so no i don't think so uh you'd have to ask him but i don't think that's his vibe you know he was in a band though i read a piece about him he was in a kind of 80s band when he like when he was a student at Leeds. so but i don't think that was kind of our vibe the timing though i just think it could have been him on superstone <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't have been such a hit but imagine but uh, but not a really nice guy Tom, Edge of the Horizon, when it came out, how did it feel not being able to tour that album fully when it came out? It was really odd. I mean, obviously, the times were so odd anyway that uh, we agonised about the record and uh, we were aware that basically without touring, we were kind of really going to struggle to get the promotion that we needed. And um, 
but I just, you know, that sense of that time, none of us really knew, did we? Like how long that thing was going to go on for? Like, you know, did we like, we were going to still be in our living rooms two years later. We just hadn't have a sense of it. So I think we felt like it was a really healthy distraction at the time. You know, we shot the video for get out on the dance floor in the kitchen of the house. I was there and that was quite nice. We did it with my kids and uh, I don't, I don't have any regrets about it really. It feels like, feels like a particular moment in time and, and um, you know, uh, it was a sort of frustration, but the one thing is, I guess, is quite good about the world we live in now is much though I have my problems with streaming and, and you know the kind of money that it, it it returns to artists. It does kind of seem to extend the lifetime of an album a bit, you know. And I've noticed um, that it's you know the record is still getting regularly listened to on all the streaming things, and actually we use that as an indication to kind of work out what tracks we were going to play from the album live, and there's one or two tracks that are just being listened to way more than others so they're the ones that will probably be featuring in our set now that you are able to tour you've decided mm. that you're not going to tour again <laughs> so what's yeah. the story it's difficult i mean you know i think that where we are in our careers and and our lives means that 25 years feels like it just feels like a really good time where we you know we put these shows on sale we're getting booked at festivals that we're really excited about playing don't know if that's going to be the case in a few years time you know so this feels like a really nice moment to do it i don't know with andy's you know we talked about it before but andy's very um he's really into this regenerative farming thing he's done it's become a real cause for him it's an obsession for him really and so there isn't really the time to do this properly anymore you know and because you can't do a career at this level part-time you get found out eventually so this feels like We've done the record. We can really commit to this last bit of touring. Um, it feels like it just feels absolutely like the wrong moment, the right moment. I feel very at peace with it, to be honest. I don't feel any. It just feels like maybe the last time we said it was the last time ten years ago. I wasn't feeling as at peace with it, but I feel very much at peace with it now. Why did you ten years ago say that it was going to be the last time? Because I think at that point we were struggling in different ways. You know, I was exhausted i was struggling a lot with my mental health at that time and it just felt like i couldn't really do it it was going to take too much of a strain on me uh and i feel much better in that respect now so and i think uh, andy was felt similarly that even then he was moving towards that farming stuff so i think that was a record that we're really proud of the tour was quite exhaustive and by the end of it i think we genuinely felt that that was enough then we started DJing again and sort of enjoying each other's company and yeah, bit by bit, we found our way back to making this record. But um, but 25 years feels good and I'm, I'm working as a, a therapist now, so I do that. Um, so I've got my own little career and I'm really enjoying that. Um, I won't stop doing music and I don't think me and Andy will necessarily stop writing music, you know, as in we may... You know, we were talking earlier about the kind of going underground bit and doing the club stuff. And I think the likelihood is we'll do a bit more of that together and carry on DJing a bit together. But the sort of, you know, being in a system, releasing records, going through the kind of anxiety of promotion and whether it's going to get on radio and touring again, that just feels like that feels too much, I think, for both of us now. Would you ever want to go back to the Space Terrace? Definitely. Although it's not called Space anymore. It's called High and uh, it hasn't got the terraces in there either. So it could go back, but I don't know if I'll be able to find it. But I, I love the idea of, you know, we're doing two shows in Ants, which is a, sh- a Shwire down in um, 
in Ibiza and the Playa del Bossa this summer. And that's a really lovely setup. They, they have the main stage at Ushuaia, which is where all the, the kind of big cheeses play. And then they have this lovely little DJ set right at the back in the beach in the round. And we play there. And actually, that's quite like the early days of Space Terrace, where it used to be open air. It's the closest you can get to that experience for me now in Ibiza. So we'll do as much of that as we can. And I still love doing that. And I love the simplicity of that, just going out, having a boozy lunch and doing a gig. That's one of the great pleasures in life, you know. Why do you think you need to full stop everything? Why do you feel the need to say that this is the last time? Because what if you feel like doing it again next year? (laughs) Because, uh, well, partly, I suppose it's sort of, it gives a focus for the tour, you know, like, you know, I'm not being, I guess I'm just being brutally honest on a kind of marketing thing. This is it. It's the 25th anniversary tour. The last time we're going to play, I guess that's how we feel. And because I think there is a thing where uh, like you're either in or you're out. And if you're, and there is no sort of in between. And when you're in and being, having a music career and I love it. And it's, you know, so blessed to have had it and what amazing time we've had in the last 25 years. But it it, it, t- it takes up a lot of your life, a lot of bandwidth, you know, like, and and sort of, and so I think there comes a point where you have to say that this is not, we're not doing this anymore. We're not going to be part of this process where, uh, you know, whether that's promotion or, you know, promoting records, rehearsing, touring bands, like, because that stuff just, it just, it, it starts taking over your life. And I think both of us feel in our own ways that we're happy to explore something different now, you know, and um, you know what it's like, it's even the weird stuff about like that awareness of what's going on in the world, that kind of like, I feel like that sort of need to kind of keep up and keep on top of stuff and be, you know, and, and so just taking that comparative stuff out of my life will be, will be a real release actually. How's the therapy going? What kind of therapy do you do? So I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist. So CBT, uh, it's good, yeah. So I started right up and right in the middle of lockdown. I had just qualified, so I'd been doing my hours and doing my training. And then I thought, well, this is a good moment, right? This is like what everyone's going to need, and I'm not doing anything else. So I started working for the NHS. So I work um, in in Barnet, uh, and I do that, yeah. And I'm actually um, coming to the end of my time there, moving on to a different job, but. Um, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. It's three days a week, so it's perfect. Like, it's a real nice balance. Like, actually, once I get off this chat with you, I'm going to be going and triaging a couple of people for a session. So it's quite bizarre, but uh, but it's good. And then um, and then I still find time to do a bit of writing and a bit of music for the rest of the time. So it's a really nice balance. Do you think that the music industry is prone to mental health problems? Yeah, I do. I think it, uh, you know, I mean, I think that people issues around anxiety and depression are obviously quite high in music you know you're putting your body under a lot of stress you're dealing with like kind of other stresses in your life you know and going on stage or late nights and often people struggling to make ends meet so a lot of the kind of factors that play a role in that probably contribute to that I think there I think things have got a lot better you know and I think that uh, you can see that people have much more open conversations about it now uh, and that's really healthy. And I think the generation coming through uh, are in a much better place to sort of talk about that and share their experiences than me when like 10 years ago, when I struggled with it, it was something I found very hard to get 
to, to you know, there was, wasn't people sharing their experiences around mental health at that time. Uh, but I think it's better in that respect that we're having conversations about it. Um, I mean, I think there's a, a general pressure at the moment and you can see it now, you know, like talking about 1.8 million people on the waiting list for for NHS therapy at the moment, you know, and so it's it's and that's obviously a lot of that is it's post pandemic stuff and anxiety around that. But I think it's it's a healthier environment. There's some great places. There's a there's a you know Health Musicians UK are doing really good stuff. There's a charity called Music Support, which I've had some involvement with, which is doing really good stuff. And all those people are much more active in that space than they were when I was struggling around Black Light. Definitely. How did you manage your own problems? I didn't really. That was the problem. I didn't even really know what it was. I had about a year of basically being depressed, you know, and I didn't really, I felt very, and I, I struggled with it. I didn't, I genuinely didn't really know what it was. And, uh, and then I went and had CBT by like, um, not particularly good CBT, but it, but, but the ideas really spoke to me like really quickly. And I started reading around it. And then studying, you know, I did a, a master's in psychology and that was really helpful. And then I did a postgraduate diploma in CBT. And so all of that, whilst it was great learning experience, was a, was a, was a form of self-therapy without question. Tom, Blue Dot is coming in July. You're headlining Friday night on the epic Lovell stage under the telescope. Have you ever been to Jodrell Bank? I haven't, no. Okay. It's really exciting. I've heard amazing things about it. My tour manager... Uh, is also Orbital's tour manager and said that they had an incredible, I mean, they did a perfect act, right, for, for Jodrell Band, but nevertheless, um, he said they had an amazing time. So I was so excited when the offer came in. We can't wait for that one. It's one of the biggest space telescopes in the world. <laughs> it's going to um, be great. <laughs> what's the show going to be like? It's a, a show that we've crafted really well over, over the years. Uh, it's a fully live experience, and I think that makes us relatively unique you know in terms of dance music we really go up there and we play instruments and and connect with the audience in that way but then the lighting show is fabulous so i think with that as a backdrop it's going to be stellar any guests um i don't think so we've got our three singers that we use and they're like amazingly versatile managed to cover off most of those guests that you mentioned at the beginning of, of, of the of the trail you know so um uh it's a it's a tight little unit but um who knows if you know if much is around uh, Judd Royal Bank at that time. We'll see if we can drag her on stage. It's going to feel special, isn't it, with this being the last time or at least the last time for now? Yeah, it's going to feel really special. I really feel like it's about really appreciating these moments now, you know, and like, and, and, and I really do. And, and, you know, that bit when you're standing side of stage with the band and they play the intro and you stand there, those are the moments I'm going to really save. It's going to be really special. So we've got a really lovely summer, but yeah, this one... This really stands out in the calendar as something that we're really excited to be doing. Uh, what are you going to come on to? We have an intro dat, which is a bit, it's kind of good, actually. It will work quite well for the setting. It's an intro dat that almost has like a kind of Pavlov's dog-like uh, <laughs> experience. And when I hear it, it just makes me sort of slightly salivate and my fingers start moving and I get ready to go. So we, 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 I don't think we, the band could actually get motivated without that intro, that. It's still on a dat, you know, after that, that's, that's how long it is. That's how old it is. So. Um, you talked about your anxieties, but um, in terms of being on stage, does that feel at home? Yeah, and I don't actually feel any anxiety at, at times like that. We've got such a good crew around us and I feel such warmth with them and such a... It's, it is actually just feels fun being on stage. It's quite weird because... 
I don't know, most of these days, these days you're, you're using in-ears monitors. So the stage is pretty quiet. You know, there's no real noise up there. So something sort of really intimate, like when you're there, particularly when you're on a big stage like that. And so the lighting's all pointing out, you don't see that much of the crowd a lot of the time. So yeah, it's like sort of, it's like sort of jamming in your live, living room with your best friends. So yeah, it's going to be loads of fun. Look, please don't, you're going to be looking up on the telescope. Yeah, it's true. So that's going to feel a bit different. Yeah. Tom, thanks so much. Tom Finlay from Groove Armada. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Blue Dot podcast. Thanks to Tom from Groove Armada. Visit discovertheblue.com to enjoy more episodes of the Blue Dot podcast and explore the lineup. Blue Dot returns to Cheshire's iconic Jodrell Bank this July with tickets on sale now. Blue Dot.